Hello and welcome to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Ordinarily, we begin the podcast with a roundup of different political stories from the week, but that seems a little inappropriate after the horrific killing of the South End West MP Sir David Amos at his constituency surgery last Friday. Later in this programme, we're going to be talking about the Global Warming Policy Forum, the latest incarnation of climate change denial, now rebranding itself as Net Zero Watch. And as the 100th anniversary of the Remembrance Poppy draws near, the first was sold in London in 1921, we ask why Britain can't stop invoking wartime imagery and the Blitz spirit. But the killing of David Amos and what it means for the safety of MPs, the bond between them and their constituents, and even the security of democracy is top of our considerations. So let's meet the panel to talk about it. Arthur Snell is a former diplomat and ex-head of the International Division of of the anti-extremism program prevents. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. Yasmin Sahan is a staff writer on The Atlantic magazine and a Californian now based in North London. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. And Justin Quirk writes about politics and culture for a huge spread of titles. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Hello, Andrew. So, uh, Justin, the horror and the feeling of just sick to your stomach on Friday when the news came through that David Amos had been stabbed multiple times and then the news that he had died of his injuries was very reminiscent of the murder of Joe Cox. What sort of an MP was was David Amos? The, the tributes in the comments today have been very heartfelt. He seems to have been very much admired in his constituency. Yes, one of the very small silver linings to have come out of this story was a very genuine sense of how well regarded he was by a very large number of people, both in the area and across the political spectrum. Um, he's an interesting character. I mean, in many ways, he was quite far to the right of the Tory party, and he was also a fairly doctrinaire Catholic. So from his voting record, you know, he was quite consistently anti-EU. He consistently voted to reduce benefits and generally scale back the state, usually voted against same-sex marriage. But there were also some issues where he clearly deviated from that wing of the party. So he was in favour of hunting ban, higher taxes on airline tickets, etc. And I think what was interesting and you got from particularly the tributes today was a sense that he actually sincerely held those beliefs rather than just saying what had been texted to say by Number 10 or the Cabinet Office. And I think that meant that even people who didn't necessarily agree with him in his constituency and across Parliament found him a constructive person to deal with and respected his views and the way he held them. And Secondly, the other thing that I thought really stood out was that very deep commitment that he obviously had to the area, which was obviously very real, and the sense of someone treating being a local MP as a career in itself rather than a stepping stone to a cabinet position. And that seems far less common these days, um, but I think it's something that voters pick up on in an area and you know they really appreciate when they feel like they're being properly represented. Um, I mean, there are quite a few telling stories from people like former researchers and assistants were posting on Twitter about him. Uh, I think my favourite was one where they said they'd missed a call where he was essentially having a cabinet job dangled at him if he voted a certain way over something and they didn't even bother returning the call. And yet the same day he'd lost his invitation to the annual Leon C. Duck race at which the office was turned upside down for three hours <laughs> to find this because that was considered a more uh, a more pressing matter. The reaction from, from, from newspapers and most sort of legitimate commentators has very, been very sober and respectful, but almost immediately on social media, we saw attempts to connect David Emerson's murder to Angela Rayner's comments about Tory scum. The attack has now been classed as terrorism. Is, is this kind of trying to turn it into a conversation about the tone and temperature of political debate misguided when it seems that from what little we know about the attack, it wasn't really generated by that aspect of politics at all? I don't think it's misguided as such, but I think what it is, is... It's conflating a few different points in a way which allows everyone to blame everyone else. And simultaneously, everyone can evade any responsibility for the state we're currently in politically. Now, we obviously can't comment on what the motivation or tipping point may have been in this particular case. 
But I think what is significant is that when this news broke, you could immediately think of three or four or five points on the political map where this attack could have come from and you wouldn't have been surprised. You know, it could have been any, you know, religious, racial, political to the anti-lockdown movement. Real political violence is mercifully rare, you know, in this country, even compared to you know, periods within our lifetime, late 80s, early 90s, you know, particularly with the far right, when the IRA was at its height. But we do live currently in a very, very febrile time. And while I think some of those takes that you referenced online, linking Rayner's language, were obviously made in very bad faith, I equally think it's disingenuous to pretend that the way our public figures conduct themselves doesn't have some influence and doesn't set a certain tone and isn't picked up on by highly agitated, impressionable members of society. Yasmin, this is the second murder of an MP in six years. Both Joe Cox and David Amos were killed while doing their jobs. Is there anything that can be done to stop this kind of thing happening without weakening that connection between the MP and the constituent? I mean, today we've seen MPs out and about with their constituents after this attack still still doing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think after the murder of two MPs, as you said, just six years apart, you have to do something um, to address this. I mean, the question, of course, is is what that is. And I, I think that's something that's obviously currently being debated um, in Westminster. Um, but, you know, I, I think the question of how do you retain what is such a fundamental part of British politics, such a fundamentally also just kind of normal and really nice <laughs> part of politics, whilst also, I think, you know, obviously keeping the very people who do the job of leading the country safe. You know, I, I think that's a really important question and something I imagine we'll be reckoning with for the next couple of weeks at the very least. Um, but, you know, I think the sad irony, of course, is that this is something that Sir David cared a lot about, at least enough to dedicate, you know, a passage about this in his book. Um, in I think it's called Eyes and Ears, A Survivor's Guide to Westminster. There's a, a passage from that, that that he wrote that's been making the rounds online. And there was one in particular that stood out to me Um it, talking about basically the, the murder of Joe Cox, he wrote that the British tradition has always been that members of parliament regularly make themselves available for constituents to meet with them face to face. You know, he talked about how that tradition was altered in the aftermath of Joe Cox's death, um, at which, which point, you know, MPs were advised to be more careful when accepting appointments, to never see people alone, to be more vigilant when it came to ensuring that their offices were safe and secure. Um, and, you know, Sir David believed that these increasing attacks have rather spoiled the great British tradition of the people openly meeting their elected politicians. So, you know, I, I think in it's sad that it's kind of, you know, come for this happening again, for I think us to really think about this critically. But I, I think certainly, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be the case that, that an MP has to die for us to really take this seriously. But but I think, you know, it, a great way to sort of honour him in, in addition to his legacy. And I think many things, of course, are underway um, to honour his memory. Um, I think this is one way that, that MPs can and should do that to really sort of reckon with how do we ensure that the people who take on these jobs do so without feeling like they have to put their lives at risk? We tend to think of the United States as a more violent society. Is there, is there a similar sense of threat to senators and congressmen in the, in the United States? I mean, we've seen actual shootings of serving senators in, in recent decades. Unfortunately, I think it's the case that if, if you're going to be a front-facing politician anywhere in the world, I think that comes with a level of risk. That said, though, I think there's something quite special about the British system that is a little different to, to the US one. Um, you know, growing up, I I don't have much memory of engaging in weekly sort of meetings with my Congress people and, and senators, which which isn't to say that they don't engage with their constituents. I think they do, but I think there's there's something more formalized about the British system. And you, even to be honest, just going to party conferences and, and seeing 
any MP, be they a, a prime minister or a minister or just, you know, a, a backbencher, engaging with their constituents, um, meeting them face to face, addressing their questions. I think there's something really special about that. It's unfortunate that, you know, that's kind of a, a vulnerable spot in British politics. I can't really imagine a, a senator in the States just going without any form of security to sort of public events, um, even if it is, say, to, you know, just a local library or, or a cafe without some level of security, which is why I think, you know, the Home Secretary Priti Patel and, and others, I, I think even Dominic Raab was saying on on Sky today that talks of ensuring that um, MPs have at least guards at their constituencies, if not police presence there. Anyone who's been to Westminster knows how high the security is. I mean, you have to basically pass through airport style security just to get into the palace, let alone the security ballards and like, you know, the the police presence that's there. So I'm not saying that they should recreate that at the constituency level. I don't necessarily think that's possible, but but I do think it is quite reasonable for them to talk about potentially offering MPs guards um, in some form or another. But I think they also have to do so with some sensitivity because, you know, I've I've certainly seen some really good points made online about how if there were police presence, for example, at constituency surgeries, that might potentially scare off people who who may not be fond of seeing the police, whether they be undocumented um, immigrants, whether they be sex workers or or people who are vulnerable, who, who want to engage with their representatives, but who may feel less likely to do so if there are police presence. Or indeed they're engaging their MP because they've got problems with the police. Yeah, exactly. Arthur, um, the Shadow Home Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons said that he's received death threats himself. I don't know of a Member of Parliament who has not suffered in this way. Are MPs safe enough in general? Uh, Well, I think the answer is they aren't, because there have been uh, two political assassinations inside five years, as Yasmin mentioned. Prior to that, there was a spate of political assassinations in the context of Irish Republican violence, but that basically ended at the beginning of the 90s when when that terrorist campaign came to an end. One of the factors here is the strange way in which MPs are sort of left to their own devices. They have to find their own offices. They have to hire their own staff. They're sort of left as kind of consultant, you know, uh, sole contractors. So there isn't much formality about how they make these arrangements. The man in custody... Ali Harbi Ali is a British citizen. It's now widely known that he had been referred to the Prevent Programme. Obviously, we don't know all the details of this, but there's immediately a lot of criticism along the lines of why wasn't he detected? Um, As someone who was involved with Prevent, what background can you give us on that? Well, the thing to remember is that Prevent is not an organisation. It's just a programme. It's a set of activities, if you like. So at some point in his life, Ali Harbi Ali, who I understand is 25 at the moment, Uh, So this could easily have been when he was still at school, could have been, you know, as much as 10 years ago. Some point in his life, somebody who was in contact with him, perhaps a teacher, perhaps a medical worker, had a reason to think, assuming they're acting in good faith, and I'm perfectly prepared to do that, had a reason to think that he was at risk of radicalization. And then that referral would have been made. So let's be clear, it is very unlikely that this was any kind of law enforcement uh, issue because I doubt he was, uh, you know, under the under the microscope of the police or MI5 or anything like that. It's most likely to be maybe a teacher who heard him make some highly violent-sounding remark at school, or maybe someone else in that kind of uh, more like social or educational setting. The Prevent Program is not a predictive tool. It's there to work with people who are viewed to be at risk of radicalization. So knowing nothing about this case... One could just say that if you deal with somebody 
who appears to be at risk from radicalization and then having worked with them for a bit you you draw a conclusion that they've pulled away from that there's no way of knowing if that person is then going to commit a murder 10 years later and of course none of us knows what the actual cause whether indeed it was him of course it's just uh, alleged at this this stage the actual cause of of his actions was the Guardian is quoting a friend of the suspect's father, saying that the father worked a lot on anti-terrorism projects in Mogadishu, fighting against al-Shabaab. He is someone who endangered his own life in public service, fighting against extremism. The kind of picture you would see in the kind of demagogue press of extremist, dangerous immigrant thing doesn't really seem to be the case here. Well, he obviously came from a privileged background. His father, he may have come from a very poor country, but his father was a diplomat and, as you've mentioned, was politically um, influential in Somalia and, and had been an advisor with a former prime minister. And Somalia is a very unequal society, so people in those sorts of jobs tend to be rather well off. Now, I, I don't know what his economic or, or other status was in, in the immediate uh, days leading up to this incident, but he won't have grown up in grinding poverty or in some kind of sort of hellish situation that we might too easily associate with Somalia. But I think the other thing to consider here is that he is, of course, it's an irrational act to be radicalized and to, to go out and commit a murder and trying too hard to understand what big global context or underlying issue that might have caused this to happen is a bit of a fool's errand. I mean, of course, we may at some point get a handle on it. But there's been, as, as others have noted, there's been an enormous amount of people being confined to their homes, being stuck online, not being able to interact with other people. That has had a very negative effect on all kinds of people's balance. Now, of course, most people don't go around committing murders. So it's not to suggest that that's, that justifies these sorts of acts. But it is not hard to understand that after the very strange year and a half that most people have lived through, that this will have some, some devastating impacts. And the Times this morning was suggesting a connection between David Emmis's work with Qatar and the fact that the suspect's father was an advisor to a previous Somali prime minister. Now, again, without kind of prejudging anything because this could be relevant or not relevant, can you, can you put some background on David Emmis's relationship with, with Qatar? Yeah, well, I can. I have to say, uh, all due respect to the Times, I think this this idea is comically insane, uh, or it would be were it not such a serious issue. So, yes, Qatar, David Amis, like lots of MPs, had relations with, with diplomats in, in London and made various visits around the place, and he was quite involved with some of the groups that are close to Qatar. As is well known, Qatar is one of the richest countries on planet Earth. Of course, it's very active in fields such as football, various other cultural fields, investment and so on. But of course, it is also controversially active in other contexts to do with, for example, being one of the very few governments that recognises the Taliban. Uh, Qatar is the host to Al Jazeera, the TV channel, which some people argue supports a fairly Islamist attitude towards politics in the Middle East. Now, the idea that uh, that somehow the link between the previous Somali prime minister and Qatar currently supporting the new prime minister could somehow have a bearing here is, is I think, ridiculous. Qatar is often accused of being close to the Islamist side in Middle Eastern politics. And 
the uh, the current prime minister who enjoys Qatar support is certainly much more Islamist oriented than the one associated with Ali Harbi Ali's father. So the theory doesn't even stand up on its own merits. I, I, I genuinely think this is probably some government officials speculating rather over-enthusiastically and the Times have sort of run away with it. Labour and the Liberal Democrats have said they're not going to contest the by-election in South End West. Is, is that the right thing to do? Or is that, you know, much as you might want to show your genuine respect for, for David Davis, that, that it's actually kind of subverts the democratic process a little? I think it's very hard to argue that it subverts the democratic process for the simple reason that in the normal run of things, so David Amos had been elected at the last election and come the next general election, he would have stood with everybody else for re-election and, and then people would have had their choice. So if the other parties ran, I mean, imagine it's extremely unlikely because I think it's a very, very safe seat. But imagine if by very some very unexpected outcome, one of the other parties had won the seat. You've effectively reached that state of affairs via a murder taking place. So I, I don't really see... I understand in general that people standing aside denies certain people a political voice. But it seems to me that this is really a bit of a formality. And um, up until the time of the next general election, it, 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 doesn't, seem, uh, it doesn't seem necessary to, to oppose the candidate who is there to replace David Amos. Justin, there was a report on threats to MPs from the Commons Joint Committee on Human Rights in 2020. It said that if unchecked, the normalisation of abuse will change our politics. It also noted that MPs are reluctant to report their assailants and that social media is almost impossible to police. And do you think we have arrived at the point where our politics have been changed? I'm not sure. When you look at the picture in its totality, I'd be wary of necessarily thinking that things were worse now. I mean, again, if you're old enough to remember, say, the height of the IRA campaign or for older listeners, you know, say the height of the National Front's activities in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, when they were polling like 45% of the votes in certain places, there was a huge amount of, if not actual political violence, then certainly the threat of it that was quite palpable. What clearly has changed is the ease with which people can make these threats and the number of people who've been pulled into this more febrile scene and to some degree are self-radicalising. That's a massive shift both in terms of the speed at which it can happen, but also the degree to which people who might never have drifted into this mindset before can end up there. In a strange way, I was thinking about this over the weekend, I'm actually surprised at how little outright political violence or aggression there is, given the amount of rhetoric and dehumanising language that we see online. But as we keep coming back to regularly on this programme about all kinds of issues, for any of these problems to be addressed and dealt with, we need a state which isn't constantly doing everything on the cheap. You know, and I thought it was really telling today when Chris Bryant's MP was being interviewed on the BBC. And he was saying just earlier that MPs like him don't report a majority of threats they receive, not because they think it's futile, but because they know how overstretched the police are, you know, because they constantly see this lack of resources. So unfortunately, without either proper regulation of social media and serious investment in public security, I think we're basically just going to keep rolling the dice on this and hoping for the best. Yasmin, just to add to end this for the moment, during the Commons tributes to David Amos today, the MP Marc Francois said that he wanted the online harms bill to be toughened up as David's law, uh, including the banning of anonymous accounts. There are all kinds of problems with ending anonymity online. We discussed, discussed them on the podcast in the past, but should we really be naming laws after murder victims? It makes kind of um, objective discussion of them almost impossible, doesn't it? 
I can understand the the desire to want to memorialize him in some way and, and to sort of feel like they're doing something off the back of a tragedy that, that will hopefully benefit politics and, and people generally. But yeah, I mean, there is, I think what particularly struck me about that is because, I mean, obviously we're still learning more about the circumstances that, that led to, to Sir David's killing. I'm not aware of any sort of, you know, I'm sure he, like many MPs were, facing anonymous accounts online saying all sorts of horrid things. But there, there's no indication, at least as far as I'm aware, that that's sort of what led to this. Mm. Even if that were the case, you know, kind of even putting that aside, I I think what's kind of difficult about that proposition is, you know, I'm just trying to also understand what it would take for, for that to, to, to actually happen in terms of removing anonymity um, from online accounts. I mean, I imagine you'd have to get social media companies on board and I really, I mean, I mean, I don't know the, the the kind of ins and outs, the intricacies of what that would take, but but I would imagine there would probably be quite an uproar, even outside. Um, obviously, this horrible tragedy, we know tons about the extent to which MPs, particularly female MPs, have faced torrents of abuse, perhaps by people who who feel like they can do that because they they don't always have their name attached to their accounts. I do see there be, being kind of an issue, though, trying to sort of tie this in, especially if it isn't quite the same thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, as for whether Twitter or Facebook or any of the other social media platforms would be on board for that sort of thing, I'm pessimistic, I guess. Meanwhile, elsewhere, the Global Climate Conference COP26 is fast approaching, and last week, Britain's key climate deniers pulled off a nifty rebrand. The Twitter handle of the Global Warming Policy Forum, a lobby group notorious for spreading climate change denialism, backed by Lord Nigel Lawson and headquartered at 55 Tufton Street, the imperial death star of libertarian astroturfing, disappeared from the internet to be replaced by, quote, net zero watch, close quotes. The Global Warming Policy Forum's goal is to challenge governments' extremely damaging and harmful policies to combat climate change, although it's unclear if the policies would be as harmful as a two-metre rise in sea levels or annual mass deaths from extreme summer heat. To find out a little bit more about them, we spoke to Andy Roll, a writer and journalist covering the energy industry. My name is Andy Roll. I'm a, a writer who spent 30 years working on health and environmental issues, specialising in the oil and tobacco industries. I'm a contributing editor for priceofoil.org. Net Zero Watch are the latest manifestation of climate denial that is going on in the UK at the moment. It's new, but it's old. So it used to be the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Their strategy for the last decade has been to try and deny the science and delay policy action. And it is no longer acceptable for them to try and deny the science. They've got a credibility problem and they're, they're having to manifest into a new being which is Net Zero Watch. The main reasons to me why they have rebranded is for years, the Global Warming Policy Foundation have, you know, they've played the tobacco industry playbook, which is, you know, to deny the evidence and to try and delay action on climate change. And that is no longer credible. They've got a problem. Every day we see new evidence of wildfires, of floods, of our climate emergency. So for them to, to sit there and you know, sit in their bunker saying global warming is not happening, climate change is not happening, is no longer credible. They've given up that line in the sand and they've moved to the next level of, of climate denial, 
which is basically try and argue that actually, okay, climate change might be happening now, where for, for years they've said it wasn't, but now they're saying it's too expensive to do anything about it. So they're trying to say, you know, if we're going to net zero, uh, that's, uh, it's naive, it's going to be too much money and we can't afford to do it. Tufton Street are the perfect example of what happens to our politics, why our politics is broken. At the centre of the Tufton Street network is 55 Tufton Street, where you've got Net Zero Watch or the Global Warming Policy Foundation or, or whatever they're calling themselves or whatever shape they've shifted into today. And you've got other neoliberal think tanks like Civitas, also, the Taxpayers Alliance. The Taxpayers Alliance was set up by Matthew Elliott, a key player in Brexit. And a lot of the former residents of 55 Tufton Street are vote leave or leave means leave. And just round the corner is to Lord North Street, where you've got the Institute of Economic Affairs. And this is where we go full circle. So the IEA, one of the most influential think tanks in the UK, got lots of links into the current government. You've got a close network of neoliberal stroke libertarian ideologues who have an undue influence on British political life and British political policy. Justin, Global Warming Policy Forum sounds like a bunch of rich guys. Net Zero Watch sounds like a consumer protection group that's on your side. What's going on here? What are they up to? Are they pulling a taxpayers' alliance here? Yeah, it's uh, it's our world too, kids. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a fairly well used tactic that if you can cloak yourself in the language of you know quote unquote concerned citizenry, then you can push extremely regressive policies that benefit a very small number of an elite group in a way that you otherwise couldn't. Um, as you say, we've commonly seen that across tax groups, but also people like Migration Watch, uh, which is such a wonderfully neutral name, isn't it? It's like, we're just here with a clipboard and a clicker, keeping an eye on things rather than taking any political view of immigration. Um, you know, Toby Young's done it with the Free Speech Union, which only ever seems to get involved about free speech when it's, you know, coming from one political side, particular side of the political spectrum. Um, and I, I feel like the real original masters of this were that whole group around spiked, um, you know, with things like the Institute of Ideas. And I think quite early on, they realized that marketing and branding was important. And if you wanted corporate bookings and sponsors for your endless roundtable forums, just sounding like you were a debating society was something no one could really take issue with. By sort of calling themselves net zero watchers, are they effectively accepting that climate change is happening and that the, the, the battleground has shifted to essentially trying to point out that it's too expensive to do anything about it? Yeah, I mean, th this has been really interesting. We've seen a real pivot in the last couple of years and it happened very, very quickly, I think about two years ago. I mean, if you think of the regularity with which we'd see people like, you know, as you said, the Nigel Lawson tendency on very mainstream news programs like The World at One, just boldly saying in defiance of the overwhelming majority of science that man-made climate change is not a thing. Now, that doesn't really seem to happen anymore. I, mean, I can't actually remember the last time I saw someone like Lawson on one of those programs. Um, and I think those last couple of years where this stuff is coming close to home, you know, you've had wildfires in, you know, 
moors in Manchester were on fire for about, you know, half of last summer. You know, we've had flooding in non-coastal areas of Germany, Walthamstow, places like this. I think it's made it unsustainable for all but the most abject headbangers on this stuff to just keep saying it's not happening. So instead, what you're seeing is the line that's been coming a lot from, say, people like Lance Foreman, the Brexit MEP, who are taking this sort of ultra-libertarian free market line of, well, yes, it is happening, so we've just got to deal with it. And the best way to do that is to make so much money that we can mitigate the impact. Now, they're always a bit vague on what that actually means. Like, how much is it going to cost to put central London on stilts or synthetically grow enough crops to feed the entirety of Europe? But it gives them a sort of ideological trapdoor through which you can say, yeah, yeah, the problem is there, but no, we don't really have to do anything different because they're constantly trying to sort of push what they say are prosperity tactics anyway. So it's really a way of just saying that it's business as usual. A self-styled Brexit hardman, Steve Baker, is a key player in Net Zero Watch. And uh, last week he was blogging that the experts, in scare quotes, in Westminster have been basing your future and mine on a plan that relies to a very great extent on a collective crossing of the fingers. Are we back to had enough of experts here? Yeah, I mean, Baker seems to have adopted the role of frontman sort of quite cheerfully for all this. I mean, he's been writing pieces in The Critic and The Sun complaining about how ruinous the cost of the drive to net zero will be. And it makes sense for them in that he's a relatively high profile MP in a fairly anonymous current crop of, you know, the Tory party. And he has a reputation as a successful and extremely aggressive campaigner. And he clearly doesn't care one jot that he won his own seat by campaigning on a manifesto, which very explicitly promised to, quote, reach net zero by 2050 with investment in clean energy solutions and green infrastructure. So he's rode back on that completely. But when you're trying to sort of analyse what makes self-style Brexit hard man Steve Baker tick, he's one of those people where you just honestly think there is something in his psychological makeup which makes him addicted to this kind of hyper-aggressive, you-don't-tell-me-what-to-do political argument. And honestly, I just feel like he's the kind of politician who could cheerfully start a fight in an empty room and still really enjoy it. <laughs> Arthur, other Tufton Street think tanks include the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Taxpayers Alliance, as we just mentioned, the Adam Smith Institute. The funding is routinely opaque. The Taxpayers Alliance scored the lowest possible grade for transparency. As a taxpayer, I've never had my voting form for the Taxpayers Alliance. Quite surprising. Yet people from these think tanks were in regulars on the BBC. They're on Question Time or always were. Why have mainstream broadcasters been so indulgent of these people with a very obvious visible axe to grind? Is it just because they're easy copy? Well, I'm sure that the BBC, which spends a lot of time protecting itself from attacks that it is too institutionally liberal left, they they work very hard to find people who are who appear to be fresh voices on the right. And I think this point about fresh is important because, of course, there's no shortage of elderly white men who can express right wing views. But these think tanks tend to be quite good at turning up people who are younger, women, people from slightly more diverse backgrounds who still hold right-wing views. And that's that's uh, that's very useful for the BBC. So this is what gets you Chloe Westley on Question Time every five minutes and then suddenly running social media inside number 10. Indeed it is. But someone's got to do this stuff. I feel sorry for these people. You've got these youngsters expressing views that must make them 
uh, so friendless. I mean, you know, they, they can't possibly know anyone of their own age who shares their opinion. So I think it's sort of nice that there's a little place for them to hang out. Steve Baker has just launched the Net Zero Scrutiny Group in the Commons because we haven't got enough scrutiny groups. There's a fantastic piece in the Times this week. Charlotte Ivers says that uh, Baker's group does not expect to defeat the Commons in any votes. It wants to put forward its idea, its side of the argument in the media and in Parliament and following the example of the ERG, eventually become enough of a pain for the government that ministers start listening to it. It's, it's depressingly, this is how it works, isn't it? Policy making by being a pain in the arse. It is. And the interesting question is whether or not it can have an effect over the long term. As you'll be well aware, and the listeners will be aware, there isn't actually much of a debate amongst the British public on the question of climate change. Uh, the, the people who deny it are really quite a small uh, fringe element. Uh, that's where it's very unlike Brexit. So a lot of the people who happen to be Brexiters who would quite like to bring bring back the old team and, and you know, have one last job, as it were, fundamentally, they don't have that many people who agree with them. Now, maybe if they, uh, just as they did with Brexit, you know, spread dishonest uh, poison about the issue of climate change over decades, they might succeed in changing the views of the British public. But it doesn't seem to me very likely that that's going to work. Yasmin, outright overt climate denial is, is much bigger and more mainstream in the United States than in, than in Britain. 26% of current Congress refuse to accept the evidence of human-caused climate change. Is, is, is it because this is now a matter of political culture, uh, you know, kind of a matter of faith and showing your identity within the contemporary Republican Party? I think by and large, it is right that Republicans tend to be more sceptical of climate science, certainly than Democrats. You know, I was looking at recent polling from Pew. Um, they said just 17% of Republicans say that human activities contribute to to climate change. But I want to pick up on what Justin said, because I think it's, it's spot on. Um, and it's something that we're going to see more around the world, which is that the climate denialists, even in the US, I would imagine, or at least I imagine they'll catch up soon. I think they're slowly starting to realize that being outright denialists and sort of rejecting what's happening outside our front doors, the flooding, the wildfires, um, you know, the U.S. hasn't been immune to any of these things. It wasn't just continental Europe. It's increasingly hard to make the argument that nothing is going on. Um, I think increasingly what we're going to be seeing, as Justin alluded to, is basically, particularly on on the sort of the, the far right, and I think populist leaders um, basically saying, look, you know, this climate science and all these proposals that these governments are putting out, this is just another elite top-down agenda that um, doesn't take into account the impact it's going to have on working people, the people that I represent, the real people, etc. So in that respect, you know, it, it is certainly true that I think this, unfortunately, is still kind of a live issue in the US. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, future Republican candidates, certainly not the Trumps of the world, because I think as we saw under the Trump administration, he did not really, this was, you know, not even a priority. And, and certainly, I don't think he really recognized the severity of the crisis that we're facing. Um, he instead chose to just engage in Twitter battles with Greta Thunberg. I wouldn't be surprised if future Republican leaders um, were essentially to say, look, yes, we acknowledge that this is a thing, but we want to pursue solutions that aren't costly, that don't force us to change the way we live our lives currently. Which brings us to this week's shenanigans with the Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who represents West Virginia, heavy into coal. He has effectively killed Joe Biden's clean energy bill, a $150 trillion investment in clean electricity for the sake of, like, what, 20,000 miners in West Virginia? What's, what's going on here? What's Manchin all about? So I, it's a good question. And I tried to do the math with this to kind of understand. I mean, I think what, what's important to know about Democrats like Joe Manchin is that he's 
kind of a, a unicorn, as it were. I mean, he's one of those few moderate Democrats that exist were elected in Republican majority states. West Virginia was carried by Trump very easily. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I was reading that it's his second safest seat. Uh, that is Trump's second safest seat behind Wyoming. And, you know, Manchin is, as far as I'm aware, the only kind of elected Democrat in the state. So he's under a lot of pressure. And, and as you mentioned, his state, um, you know, it's a coal region. They they produce coal. He, he has a vested interest in ensuring that his state doesn't boot him out. And in fact, I was looking at in his last election um, in, in 2018, he won by just 3%. Or um, if my math is correct, 19,397 people. So, you know, you do the math. Yes, there's only 20,000 minors. But if your margin um, of victory is less than that, then, yeah, this is going to be an issue that you care about for better or worse. Arthur, it, it's looking a lot like uh, Xi Jinping is unlikely to attend COP26. What sort of message is this going to send to the rest of the world when the leader of the biggest emitter doesn't show? It doesn't send a great message. And... Of course, there's a wider point here which draws on from what Yasmin was just talking about, which is that it doesn't look as though COP26 is going very well. That's not very surprising if you think about who's in charge. Boris Johnson is not somebody who's very interested in hard work, in long and uh, detailed negotiations, in working uh, with a wide range of partners in order to achieve a difficult outcome. So, it is difficult to know exactly where China stands. China has wanted to link discussions about climate to wider discussions like, you know, issues relating to Taiwan and issues relating to uh, global trade and so on. And of course, other countries would rather just leave it as a discussion about climate because all the, those other issues with China are far too uh, difficult. So I'm, uh, I, I don't want to be, uh, have a bit of a downer on COP26 because it hasn't happened yet, but I think there are quite a lot of worrying signs in terms of how it's, how it's looking. Well, we're going to be doing a special series on COP26 and the numerous aspects of it as we get closer to it. So maybe we can undowner it. But Justin, it's your job to undowner COP26 because just to drag listeners back from the brink, apparently you have some actual good climate news to report on the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook 21 event. Is this correct? Yes, there was, uh, it was quite a storm of relative good news from that last week. Um, the headlines were interestingly largely from the market side of things um it was all based around their recent the agency's recent roadmap to net zero by 2050 reports and what's interesting about things we've just discussed is that when things are often getting gridlocked politically and deadlocked because of sort of very small local interests beneath the surface the market is only really going in one direction and this was particularly significant because the iea has often been very conservative on this stuff in the past and has looked at sort of a continued fossil economy. And they pivoted quite heavily now at this point and were essentially saying that there was a very good analysis of it by the Carbon Tracker website, which I'd recommend uh, listeners follow if they're interested in this kind of thing. And they were pretty clear. They said coal demand has already peaked. And by these numbers, oil and gas demand will likely peak by 2025, so only a couple of years away. 2019 was us the peak in fossil fuel demand and we're bouncing on the plateau. Now, they do say it's not going to be easy and there's going to be a great deal of volatility. But broadly, in terms of the big picture, we're at a stage where the, all the indicators are now flashing. If you're betting investment-wise on fossil fuels, you'll be very likely to lose your shirt. 
over the medium to long term. So new energy is a huge opportunity with demand increasing tenfold to over $1 trillion and the new opportunity being bigger than the oil market today. So it's potentially where we're going to see all of the jobs, investment, infrastructure and opportunity coming from. And whatever people are saying politically, ultimately people will go where the money is. And that only appears to be in renewables and green energy right now. So capitalism is going to save us. Yay. Once again, yes. <laughs> you did it again, capitalism. Hem, hem. I sound like Matt Ridley now. <laughs> yes, let's come back in 10 years' time when this podcast is being run from me peddling energy into a bicycle or something like that. <laughs> My massive solar panel house. Finally, these are depressing times with shelves emptying, food and fuel shortages, a pandemic that will not end, and a government whose remedy is to go on holiday. And the only thing guaranteed to make it worse is that inevitably somebody somewhere will invoke the Blitz spirit, as Times writer Claire Fogis did this week, writing, We've got used to a degree of chaos during the pandemic, and many secretly enjoy the chance to show some Blitz spirit. Why can we not face any national inconvenience without Ian Duncan Smith telling us what people put up with during the German bombing campaigns of the 1940s? Also, we're about to mark the 100th anniversary of the first remembrance poppies after the Royal British Legion adopted an idea from Anna Guerin, the poppy lady from France. Bad news, proud dad 687, the French invented the poppy. So are we ever going to get out from this fixation on the wars of the 20th century? Arthur, Blitz rememberers are by definition too young to have experienced it. And a lot of them wouldn't even have had secondhand descriptions from their grandparents. Is there much Blitz lore in the Snell family? Uh, there's a little bit. So um, the, my only surviving parent is my dad and he's old enough that he would have remembered it had he not been living in deepest rural Gloucestershire. His grandmother, so uh, my great-grandmother, who I never knew, um, came to live with them because her house, which was right in, in Westminster, I think was was either blown up or certainly wasn't a good place to be. But, I mean, the sort of bad faith pretend we all held hands and sang songs in the shelter stuff, I'm glad to say I didn't grow up with. Why can't this country let go of invoking the Blitz spirit every time you know, the electricity goes off or uh, the boiler's broken. Well, I think it, it is really this, it's just this obsession. You know, it's World War II and 1966 World Cup. You know, we just, there is, the, the silly thing is, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, well, we haven't done anything since then, so we go on about those things. There have been plenty of things have happened since that time of of that we could we could afford to be proud of as a country, but we just seem to keep going back to those things. I, I, don't, I don't get it myself, but, you know, that's what it is. It is oddly double-edged, isn't it? Because it's both, stop moaning, it, things are worse than the Blitz, a, a kind of a way to attack people, and yet somehow enjoying the idea of privation at the same time. It's a kind of a double thing. You know, it was awful, but we kind of love it, or certain people love it. Where does this double thing come from? I think there is a thing which, and this is the bit that where Britain hasn't got its head around it, the British civilian suffered much less in World War II than any other European country, with the exception of Ireland, uh, because, you know, we weren't invaded, that the proportion of the population that actually died is much lower. So it's very easy for people to romanticise that period, because whilst the Blitz itself did affect London very heavily, it didn't actually, compared to, for example, the bombings of German cities that were completely destroyed, British civilians didn't suffer that much. So I think one of the things is that most British people don't realise that the, the countries that suffered the most in World War II were definitely not uh, Britain, you know, that it was other countries. So we've allowed ourselves to fall into this sort of weird faux romantic version of the past 
where we sort of think that wars are rather jolly and fun. Now, I, I don't want to sound like some, you know, slightly self-important Wally, but I have actually spent time in combat zones and they're not fun at all. And particularly if you're in danger of having a, an explosive thing land on your head, uh, it's terrifying and I wouldn't recommend it on anyone. So that's just my, my, my little observation on this. <laughs> just your two penneth. As, as somebody who's been shot at and had bombs thrown at him, I think you're allowed to have your two penneth. Justin, I mean, your family, like mine, is from Liverpool, where memories of the Blitz are a lot less rosy. My grandparents' tales were absolutely terrifying. My grandmother used to tell us as kids that one morning after the Blitz, they'd come down, they found three dead men propped up in the back entry at the back of the house. They'd been talking and they'd been killed by blast. Blitz enthusiasm seems to come from the comfortable suburbs and the younger kind of Billy Britain poppy on your on your Twitter profile type of people. Are we basically a fantasy cosplay country now, sort of imagining a past that we didn't really live in? To a degree, yeah. And I think a great unappreciated animating force in public political life is chronic boredom. Um, I think this is a huge force that no one ever really considers when we think about what motivates people. And I think one of the reasons why an event like last week's that we were discussing shocked us all so much is that even if at its worst, we broadly live in a country which is basically by global standards, safe, peaceful and prosperous. And we've lived this strange period of the last five years or so in which our two main parties were respectively convinced or trying to convince us that we either lived in some prison camp under the jackboot of Brussels or some Mad Max hellscape of neoliberalism, which you know, for most people just isn't the case in either way. And when the reality is rather more sort of boring and mundane, and there was something um, Fukuyama wrote about this in The End of History, where he said about experience suggests that if men cannot struggle on behalf of a just cause, because that just cause was victorious in an earlier generation, then they'll struggle against the just cause. They will, in other words, struggle out of a certain boredom, because they essentially just have this desire to sort of argue against something. So I think that there is this sort of built-in desire where people want to think that there's a conflict or had they been in a conflict, they would have done really well. Where, you know, I say for most of us, the reality is something much, much more boring. Yeah, it's actually you know, connected with that. Mark Goldsworth did point out on Twitter that most of the people getting excited about the Blitz are very unkeen about masks in general. They're very excited about masks during the Blitz, but not now when you need to wear them for pandemic reasons. Do you know what I mean? Like, make your mind up. Yeah, I mean, it's pick a lane time, isn't it? But as, as I say, I don't think any of these people are making any sort of serious point about social cohesion or crisis response. They just want the free son of feeling like a put-upon minority yeah. as opposed to being an extremely comfortable majority with absolutely fuck all to complain about. <laughs> Yasmin, not for the first time I'm going to ask you, do the British seem crazy to you for this? J- just in general? or <laughs> just Well, on this specific <laughs> one, Something that I don't think perhaps people here will appreciate very much, but I'll just give my viewpoint as as a newcomer to this country. No one warns us that come November, everyone will just start wearing poppies and no one will inform you as to why or when or if you should do the same, Um, which isn't to say that we can't take it upon ourselves like I did to read up and learn. But, um, you know, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think when I moved here, I don't think I was aware of the extent to which the war would be invoked in all matters, political, geopolitical, sports, etc. I don't 
think it's crazy as, as such. It's hard to really compare to one's own experience, especially if you come from, say, the U.S., where I don't think we really have an equivalent. And, and just to preempt some of the listeners who are going on, yes, I know we don't have as much history. Thank you. But yeah, you know, I, I suspect it, it probably also stems from the fact that as a nation of, of immigrants, and this isn't, of course, to say that Britain, like many other countries, don't have large swaths of immigrants, but, you know, given the U.S.'s story and what we tell ourselves, not all people and families share the same history or the same experiences either. So, you know, even growing up, I like if I talked about my grandparents' experience at that period, like in Palestine, like my best friend whose whose grandparents are from India would have like, you know, completely different experiences. And so we don't have that sort of kind of shared ownership over narrative in, in that way. Yeah, I think the kind of American equivalent of uh, the, the really hard time we came through was the old country. And everybody has a different old country, don't they? Precisely, yeah. And obviously one would think that like something as big as a war would, you know, would, would kind of bind us all together. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's exactly that. I think if you don't have, even to the extent that we talk about, say, the War of Independence, like my family was nowhere near the United States when that happened. So, you know, we talk about it as, yes, it's our history, but but I don't think we invoke it in that same sense of, oh, our ancestors, you know, suffered this, so we should be able to do the same. Arthur, the poppy is 100 years old this November, which means the traditional poppy arguments are going to get earlier, as they do every year. The Royal British Legion has just had to tweet that every year we see social media posts suggesting the poppy is not being offered for sale in certain areas of the country. This is categorically untrue. We're proud to offer the poppy in every community in the UK, and yet people still want to argue about it and want to believe that it's being suppressed. What is it that is the kind of crossover with poppy enthusiasm and the need to be to play the victim? I do think this is one of those social media things where there's a very small number of vocal people who uh, get up in the morning and search for someone saying something they don't agree with so they can then start an argument. Something I've noticed, uh, because I live in a rural community that's basically full of rather old people who are not online, but tend to have rather traditional views, that this sort of Poppies as a culture war concept, you know, people where I lived literally would have no idea about that. It's just a thing that happens once a year and someone comes around the village and you put money in the in the tin and, you know, you get your poppy. So I, I, I think this is one of these things that there's a little group of people on social media who, who get energy from searching out these fights. And of course, it, that, that plays into some of the other things we've been talking about today. Uh, and the poppy is just one of these tiresome aspects of it. I've no doubt GB News will, will devote a whole segment to the poppy wars and how, you know, people are being attacked for wearing poppies. And yet back in the real world, it, it barely registers. Well, you've got to get the poppy war in before war on Christmas starts. There's only, I think, uh, eight, there's only four, four <laughs> months of war on Christmas time before Christmas. Well, listeners, wear a poppy or don't. It's entirely up to you. But we cannot guarantee that this podcast will be wearing a poppy next week. You'll have to find out. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. As usual, it's time for Escape Routes. What the films, TV shows, music, books, whatever else, have acted as a, a soothing balm on your escape from politics and the bruising world of current affairs. Yasmin, what have you been diverting yourself with? Well, now that I've finished Squid Games, which I think I recommended the, the last mm-hmm. time I did one of these, um, and now it's it's an international sensation, so you're welcome. Um, I, I'm assuming <laughs> everyone listened to this and thought, oh, I'll watch that. But yeah, so now that I finished that, which was very, very good, I'm now watching You, which for the uninitiated is a psychological thriller on Netflix about a bookstore manager slash, not really spoiler, spoiler alert, but spoiler alert, serial killer, who always manages to somehow get into trouble. Anyway, it's... I thought the first season was brilliant and the second season was a bit weird and the third season is now even weirder, but it is a great diversion from, you know, the world of everything really. So it's an excellent setup, but it's a terrible title. They should have called it Slaughterstones. 
so people know what they were getting. <laughs> yeah. Arthur, how, how about you? What are you diverting your mind with? Well, I I woke up extremely early this morning, not not planned, you know, just in that middle aged way that we do. And I thought, oh well, I, I can I can watch Succession. It's now come out. So I, I clicked on the thing, but it wouldn't work. So I assumed that middle-aged men all over the country had woken up early and crashed the Now TV app. Um, and therefore, I haven't seen Succession. But something I have seen, which I can recommend very heavily, although I admit to, to bias in all of this, is um, and it's on Hulu, which I realize is not accessible, but I think it, it'll, it'll no doubt reach these shores eventually, is uh, George Stephanopoulos, who, who some listeners will be familiar, is, a, is one of the leading news anchors and, and, and broadcast journalists in the US. Uh, he's just started a documentary production company, and his first documentary is a full hour-long feature on uh, my friend and colleague Christopher Steele. Now, Chris wow. Steele, as some will remember, is the man who uncovered Donald Trump's links to Russia and famously uh, the thing that you'd rather wish you'd never heard about, which was the golden shower in the uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow. There's been a lot of controversy around this story, as you'd expect, but particularly because it was a story that made Donald Trump look stupid. So, of course, he, <laughs> he's never managed to get over it. Uh, but but Stephanopoulos has made this uh, documentary. It, it's a very balanced uh, account. It, it's not, it, you know, it's not there just to give Chris his side of the story. It's supposed to sort of go back over it and analyze it. It's the first major interview that Chris has ever given since the events of 2016. Uh, and it's really worth watching. It's called Out of the Shadows, and that's exactly what Chris has done. So uh, I apologise for recommending something that won't be very accessible to most people in Britain, but I'm sure it will become available. Uh, as I say, it's on Hulu at the moment. All of our listeners have got VPNs. So I'll find a way of getting it. Yeah, yeah, they'll figure it out. But I'm, I'm not going to suggest that, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course not. That will be terrible. Uh, my, my escape route actually is succession because uh, perks of the job, I've managed to see the first three episodes already. They're very, 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 very good. You'll, you'll be amazed to learn. And uh, without giving, this is not a spoiler in any way, but there is definitely a move into a new phase of relationships within the Roy clan. And there's an awful lot of switching sides and betrayals. And as usual, everybody's being you know fantastically witty and horrible to one another so yeah i mean i fully support you getting up early but you know watch it on proper broadcast tonight justin what's your escape route after years of meaning to read it i'm finally finishing uh, conrad's novel the secret agent which is absolutely brilliant but is such a incredibly vivid portrayal of the mindset of what you'd imagine would now be anti-vaxxers or gilets jaunes or anti-lockdown protesters. It's a really, really uncanny experience reading something that was written in 1904 or whatever and effectively reads like you're reading a story about modern-day London. It's absolutely brilliant. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Yasmin Sahan. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thank you. And thank you, Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. This week's edition is all about succession if you want a spoiler-free dive into the themes, if not the actual events of the new series. Remember, if you like this podcast, please do forward it to three friends just to spread the word. And if you really liked it, you could support us on Patreon for early episodes and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, before we go, time for some shouts to our latest Patreon backers. So very many thanks and best wishes to Ruth Murray, Mark, just Mark, and Brett Turner. Many thanks and the very best from me to Matthew Trigg, Holly Rosamond, and Alistair Hay. And it's all the best from me to Caroline Leroy, J. 
James Brown and Alison Edmondson. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Lloyd Gash, Aoife Branagh and Claire McRae. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran, Arthur Snell and Justin Quirk. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. All audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is the Podmasters production.